This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah! Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah! But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. The Slate Audio Book Club is sponsored by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audiblepodcast.com slash ABC. And by the new series, The Astronaut Wives Club, Meet the first ladies of space, the women behind the original astronauts. As their husbands became heroes, these wives rocketed to stardom. The Astronaut Wives Club premieres Thursday, June 18th on ABC. Hello, and welcome to the Audio Book Club for June 2015. I'm Katie Waldman, Slate's words correspondent, and I'm joined today by Hannah Rosen, a writer and editor for Slate and the Atlantic, and a double X podcaster. Hi, Hannah. Hi, I'm so many things. How are you? You are. I'm good. Um, <laughs> and Emily Bazelon, a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and one of the hosts of the Political Gab Fest. Hey, Emily. Hey, I'm glad I also get to have multiple identities. <laughs> but you have the best title, Katie, the words correspondent. The words exactly. Correspondent. I didn't realize it was officially the words correspondent. That's so cool. It is. It, and I trot it out every chance I get. And today I'm in New York for a change, and Hannah, you're in D.C., and Emily, you're in New Haven. So our conversation is born aloft and made possible by invisible waves wafting up and down the East Coast. And I mention that because today we're discussing All the Light We Cannot See, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by Anthony Doerr, which is preoccupied with transmission and reception and connections between disparate things that may or may not be apparent to the naked eye. So I can't wait to hear what you guys thought of the book. But first, maybe we should give a basic summary of what happens. Good luck to you with that. (laughs) (laughs) Also, as usual, we will be spoiling the crap out of this book. So if you don't want to know what happens, perhaps go read the book and then come back and we will be here with open arms. Great. So All the Light We Cannot See interweaves the stories of two children living in Europe during World War II and the years leading up to it. There's Marie-Laure LeBlanc, a resilient, freckled French girl who loses her eyesight at the age of six. Marie-Laure is fascinated by natural science in the ocean. Her loving father, the chief locksmith for the Museum of Natural History in Paris, designs her intricate puzzle boxes to solve on her birthdays and builds replicas of the neighborhood she lives in for her to explore and learn by heart. Later, Daniel, her father, is imprisoned in a German work camp and sort of shunted from the narrative, which hopefully we can discuss. There's also Werner Pfennig, a German orphan whose prodigious skill in constructing radios wins him a place in an elite and nightmarish Nazi training school. Over the course of his, I want to call it an anti-education, because of course it's kind of a crude moral blindness or callousness that they're instilling, Werner designs and perfects a system for triangulating enemy transmissions. That specialty eventually brings him to St. Malo the Breton village where Marie-Laure is living with her reclusive uncle and acting as a courier for the resistance movement. Also in the mix is a putrid and cancerous Nazi diamond appraiser by the appropriately villainous name of Sergeant Major Reinhold von Rumpel, and there is a precious and possibly cursed blue stone called the Sea of Flames. So that is my incredibly long plot summary. (laughs) 
And I guess one other thing we should note about this book is that the structure is highly complex. The chapters are quite short and they jump around chronologically. So maybe we can start there. So I have to confess something. <laughs> you haven't read this book. You've never I haven't read it. the book at all. I never heard of it. <laughs> I thought it was about the Vietnam War. No, that's not what I'm confessing. It's actually the structure is quite clear, but I only figured that out the second time around. So like the first time around, I found the structure unnecessarily confusing. And the second time around, so basically the structure runs chronologically, except that it's intercepted by the last day or two constantly. So it's like mm -hmm. the the close of the book is spread out throughout the book as this couple of very intense days. But as I was reading it, I didn't realize that this single day in August of 1944, which is when the book kind of comes to a head, the action comes to a head, was kind of being parsed out in little bits and hours throughout the book. So I just like couldn't figure out and didn't know where I was. And only the second time around, I figured it out. And then I realized it's just like a little house, which becomes yes. kind of the central mm -hmm. thing roaming around the book, which is uh, it's the house in the house. So yeah. when, and, and I'll explain this for the listeners, in order to help Marie get around wherever she's living, her father constructs a replica of the village or city that they're living in so she can feel around with her hands and learn where the streets are. And he ends up hiding this precious jewel in whatever in that model is her own house. So there's a house within a house that's critical to the book's plot, and the book is constructed like a house within a house. I say all this, and I will conclude by saying it was annoying to me. <laughs> it was annoying, but whose fault was that? Not to blame you, but I do feel like the writer, Anthony Doerr, gave us some pretty clear chronological clues along the way that every time he goes back to this crucial day in August 1944, he dates it. Yeah, it's possible. And yet it's my fault, but I'm not sure what, what did we gain from <laughs> right. having that day spread out like that? Like, why disperse the emotional power of the ending, which I thought was incredible. Like, I love the ending when they came together. It is, you know, there's a little bit of artificiality in taking these disparate characters and having them kind of march slowly towards each other. But I actually thought the ending was very beautiful. But, but why have its emotional power sort of spread around before you're ready for it, before you know it's coming, before you know what it's about? Like, what did we gain by that? A lot of suspense, I think, right? I mean, it propelled me forward in a way that when I was rereading this book over the last couple of days and flipping pages, I didn't feel as compelled. And I felt the same way, Katie, listen to your summary. In some ways, the kind of summary of this book, the cliff notes is, and I mean, this is true of a lot of good books, but it was the immersive quality of the book that really mm. got me while I was reading it. And I think that was partly because of the suspense of those last two days as it built throughout the course of the narrative. Yeah, I would say there are two structural things that are kind of unusual going on here. And the first is the length of the chapters. Like, they're so short. There are these kind of brief bursts and scenes and, like, moments. And then you move on to the next thing, and it's years, years later or earlier. So there's that. And then there's the timeline, which Hannah already described. And I could – I'm not sure. I don't think that either of those things – were like to the detriment of the book, but I also didn't see why they were necessary. I could definitely see how short chapters allowed him to be suspenseful and have a lot of cliffhangers because <laughs> the more chapters you have, the more cliffhangers you can have. And then for the 
chronology, I got a sense that it was important to this book to have a lot of coincidences and connections and things kind of in a revelatory way slotting into place and you kind of gasp and maybe it's easier to see those connections when you can disrupt the timeline a bit. But again, yeah, I, I found it a little bit unnecessary. I mean, the thing I liked about it is that it replicated a broken transmission. It kind of mm -hmm. replicated mm -hmm. the feeling of those last two days when you're stuck in a bombing. You don't really know where you are. You don't know where the action is. You don't know where anybody else is. And you're trying to kind of hear these things on a radio. So the way the ending unfolded kind of made us feel like that, you know. The thing I didn't like about it is that I think my central problem with this book is I felt that the author was at war between kind of superficiality and depth. And mm -hmm. every time there were passages that became beautiful or character descriptions that started to deepen, you jump to a new chapter. I don't know why. It was almost like, you know, I'm afraid to go any deeper. Mm -hmm. Like, And so he would kind of rely on these fairly um, artificial, you know, construct of, of the book's structure. And so I felt the book didn't quite fulfill its potential the way it could have if he just let us relax into one of the, you know, some of the characters or the unfoldings. A little more with Marie, I would say, than with Werner. Dor has actually talked about the brevity of the chapters and said that he felt like he was offering a lot more lyricism than mm -hmm. some readers are used to. And so he was giving a lot of blank space of white page to kind of recover from that. And maybe what we're really hearing there is another way of talking about the weakness you were just mentioning, Hannah, which is to say that this book was designed to be a bestseller. And so mm -hmm. it doesn't feel to me like it went as deep or became as rich as it perhaps could have. The other thing that he has talked about during interviews is technology and his experience of modern technology and things that we take for granted. Like this book was partially inspired by him seeing an incident, which we all see constantly, which is somebody like cursing out their cell phone on mm -hmm. a train, you know, and, and mm -hmm. that, you know, brought him to mind. Louis C.K. actually has a great riff about this in one of his earlier albums about like how we forget the wonderment <laughs> of like what these phones can, <laughs> can do for us. Right, and, you know, right. it's like all the light we cannot see is partly all the transmissions we cannot see. Mm -hmm. And so this book is in some sense a nostalgia calling us back to mind when we thought radio was astonishing, when it it could bring people together across languages and continents, when it could actually save people's lives. So we are being forced to remember that. But on the other hand, I thought maybe his consciousness of modern technology made him a little nervous. So it was like, well, we don't actually any of us have any more attention span. So I'm just going to write this book with white space and very short chapters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because even though I'm nostalgic and wish for a world in which things were deeper and people were deeper, that's not the world that I live in. To come back to the idea that he was doing short chapters also to make the lyricism more digestible somehow. I mean, sometimes when I was reading the book, I got to say I was totally enthralled. Like I just, it was incredibly enjoyable to me to just flip pages and I couldn't put it down, but it didn't sit with me that well after a week or so. I didn't like look back on it particularly fondly. And, and why is that? What other thoughts were you having? Well, so going back and looking at passages, like sometimes the writing was just beautiful and surprising and I loved it. And other times it just felt like so wrapped and sentimental and like, oh, the wonder of radio transmissions and all the invisible lines connecting us all. It felt um, ugh, like glib almost and maybe even 
sort of making designs on our emotions as opposed to feeling them sincerely, like so sincere that it wasn't sincere. Um, Can we talk about that with relation to the two individual characters? Because I felt that that was true differently of each of them. Hmm. Like a Verona. For me, I felt more manipulated, particularly in retrospect. I had the same experience, Katie, of um, enjoying this book a great deal as I was reading it and then feeling a little bit repulsed is strong, but a little bit worried about it. Mm-hmm. And that particularly related to my feelings about Werner, who is the German character. And this way in which there's uh, something so idealized about him. He's the, our, you know, Hitler youth guy. We He's there very deliberately to make us see, I think, that Germans also suffered in World War II and that there were good people caught up in the horrors of Nazism, who had no control over their own participation. And Mm -hmm. I got all of that, but I still felt uncomfortable with how it was being presented. And then in retrospect, I started feeling like the way in which the plot built to Werner and Melilor having their encounter at the end of the book was really sentimental and, Mm -hmm. and a sort of idealized notion of like, German helping French, that there were all these bigger questions about World War II, about the completely unmentioned Holocaust, which like right. essentially is disappeared from this book. And mm-hmm. um I don't know. I started trying to decide whether this book was trying to let itself off the hook of not being even counted as Holocaust literature and whether that was like uh, just not a uh, legitimate move to make. Yeah, it's incredibly tidy how the two stories intersect. And I think that neatness is almost like a moral neatness. Like it really wants to be a book about World War II and the various heroism that different people demonstrated on both sides and sort of the nobility that is tragically corrupted in one case and that shines through in another. But it didn't want to be about just like the abject horror of what was happening in the work camps and... Yeah, there is something about the tidiness and the hopefulness of it that didn't feel authentic to me and that left a bad taste in my mouth. I was reading the book thinking I want him to rub more in our face with Werner, you know, Mm -hmm. like that it was a little bit of a gentle Werner never has a reckoning, right? Like we don't exactly understand why Werner, who just to re-explain is an orphan. So that's his first excuse is an orphan. And so when, when he finds a German, I can't remember what rank this, but somebody important in German military, he fixes his radio and the guy gives him his his great break. You know, he says, I'm going to send you to this Hitler youth place. And Werner knows, that this is his one ticket out of the coal mines of Essen and he dreads working in the coal mines which another place where there is no light he doesn't want to work there so he takes this ticket out goes to the Hitler youth place and and we're sort of with him so far right because he's mm-hmm. like a poor orphan who is genuinely passionately interested in radio and talented. And so we're kind of following him along. And then suddenly he's faced with all these moral dilemmas, but they're a little bit predictable and expected his Mm -hmm. moral dilemmas. You know, he's got a friend and his friend is gentle and his friend refuses to do things and he doesn't refuse, say, to beat up a prisoner. And then, you know, why is it that Werner comes around again? I was hoping his sister would play a great role in this. I was hoping his sister would be kind of a twin to Marie, like, and somehow she would bring him around. But his sister just kind of 
faded from the book. Like she was a moral voice, his friend Frederick was a moral voice, but but it wasn't clear how these moral voices were impinging on Frederick or moving him or making him do things. It's just like he had this, you know, kind of kind of the spark of love at the end. Yeah, well, um, and also I think like there was sort of a shortcut that was taken just to spoil. So he steps on a landmine at the end of the book and he dies. And it's sort of read to me as a sacrifice. Like in the sort of mythology of the book, there's this diamond. And if you possess the diamond, you will live forever, but everyone you love will die or suffer. And I sort of felt that according to the philosophy or the mythology of the book, you could either survive and have everyone else die or you could sacrifice yourself so that the people you love would live. And so like in some weird way, his death was to be interpreted as like a moral rebirth because, you know, finally he realized what was right and what was wrong. And at that point, he was <laughs> removed from the equation and he died and that meant that he loved others or something. It felt... That makes me Katie, does he have the stone... Does he have the stone when he died or did he flush the stone out to sea? We should, I suppose, explain that the stone is hidden in this little miniature house that is in the larger house that Marie-Laure's father builds for her. And then she ends up trying to protect it, having it in her pocket after her father has disappeared. And then she tries to send it out to sea, but it seems as if maybe Werner goes back for it. And then Mm -hmm. and then. What do you think? Did he put it in his pocket and then step on the landmine to end the curse? Ooh, I love that reading. I didn't even I just I just assumed he said he put it out to sea. I was like, all right, Warner. Put well, he it took out the to house sea. back. Yeah. I, I wasn't I don't know that it was a clear. Keepsake. I actually wrote that down in my notes. Like, ask Katie and Emily what happened to the stone. <laughs> like, right. Did I, miss I don't it? think it like, is clear. Yeah, it's not clear. And I like both of your readings put together that Warner kept the stone. Did he know the mythology of the stone? Had she told him? Did she tell him? I don't I think he does know. Yeah, well, so I don't it think... takes. Oh, go ahead. There is mention in the book of like only a really. I think maybe it's her dad or her uncle. Her great uncle says to her, "You know, only a really special person could resist the charms of the stone." So von mm-hmm. Rumpel is the opposite of that person. You know, he's a person who just wants to hoard the stone for himself because he's dying of a disease. So he's like the clearly evil one. But yes, I I like both your readings that he kept the stone in his pocket and then basically did a suicide mission so that the reverse curse could happen and all the people he loved, which at that point included Marie, um, because he has just, in fact, saved her life Mm -hmm. thrice over, as she says, and his sister and his complicated friend, Volkheimer, uh, that all of those people could survive and he would have to die. What do we think about this stone in a book about World War II that in some ways is a book of realism, not a fairy tale? And yet the stone is fantastical and made me feel, again, sort of worried that Mm -hmm. I was enjoying this book that was letting me off the hook of thinking about the real darkness behind it by having this kind of delightful fairy tale in the middle of it that seems to be controlling everyone's fate and destiny and thus doesn't make them, and particularly Werner, personally accountable uh, for what he's doing in the same way. 
Yeah, that was a moral question at the center of the book, the sort of Hitler's willing executioners. That is, you know, the the book sort of slightly touches profundity when Frederick, his friend at the Hitler Youth Camp, and Werner have a conversation about whether you control your own life. And he says to Werner acutely, because, you know, you're as an orphan, you think that you are making your own destiny. And so the question is, do you make your own destiny? Do you not make your own destiny? And yes, so the, the book ends up on the side, I guess, of, of you don't, really? make choices? Is that why it lets Werner off the hook? Does it side with, you know, you are somehow fated? This is your fate? I think that it sort of does. And that that's like a little moral relativism in here that's discomforting. On the other hand, she very clearly represents someone who does make choices, although she cuts against that in her own speech at the end, where she says, basically, I, I was born this way. You know, I am not, everyone keeps calling me brave. Brave, right. Because she becomes part of the resistance in the end. So she's doing quite risky things at a time when the town is being watched. She ends up being like a carrier pigeon. Like she goes to the bakery, gets messages which are baked inside bread, takes them home to her great uncle, who then transmits secret codes that help the resistance. Incredibly dangerous work that she's doing. And yet she refuses to accept that she's brave because she says, you know, I had no choice. I'm blind. You know, I'm not brave. I just have to wake up in the morning and live my life. We'll talk more about the book in a moment. But first, this episode of the Audiobook Club is sponsored by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. And as a special offer, listeners of the Audiobook Club can get a free audiobook of your choice at audiblepodcast.com slash ABC. Audible offers free apps for iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. You can download and listen on an iOS device, on Android, Kindle Fire, Windows Phone, and over 500 MP3 players. The point being that if you can listen to me right now, you can also listen to audiobooks. There are a lot to choose from, so let me recommend a book that readers of All the Light We Cannot See might enjoy. As I was reading this wonderful World War II saga, I was thinking, what are some other great World War II books that I've read recently? And one of them is Kate Atkinson's Life After Life, which is a bewitching story about an RAF pilot, Teddy, and his sister, Ursula. There's definitely some magic thrown in. It's a structurally intriguing novel, and I think listeners will really enjoy it. So check out uh, Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. If you want to listen, Audible has it. With more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products, you'll find what you're looking for. And a reminder, you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial today by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash ABC. Okay, back to the show. Hannah, you sent an email before we actually started recording saying, what do you think is the light that we cannot see? So wondering what you guys think the light that we cannot see is. So many things. Yeah. It's a good title for a book like this. It really does capture almost all, many of the themes. Okay, blindness is one, right? Mm -hmm. So she, there's a light that she can't see because she's blind. In the beginning, Werner and his sister Jutta, they fall in love with the transmission. This is one of the sort of fantastical connections in the novel that happens to be coming from, I guess it's Marie's grandfather, um, had been making these scientific transitions transmissions. <laughs> and one of them is about the brain. You know, it's it's a kind of wondering about the brain. The brain is housed in darkness, and yet it allows us to see so much light. I, I couldn't quite figure that one out. 
like what that means. Uh, but I'll just keep listing them. There's 20,000 <laughs> Leagues Under the Sea. Right. You know, in Captain Nemo, there's a lot of underwater kind of themes. There is also technology. I think sometimes I think that's the real subject of this novel mm-hmm. and not the war. Um, you know, this sort of light that beams between things and allows us to do so much and hear so much. Anybody well, okay. So here's light? my question about light. So it seems to some extent like it's the truth or knowledge. And throughout the book, there's kind of this fear of being left in the dark or duped or deceived. And that's, you know, that's a huge terror when you are blind is that you will be shut out of the world. You'll be lied to in some way and you'll have no way of knowing. And there are just, there are so many counterfeits and lies throughout this book. Like there's the fake stones. So there's the real stone that is hidden from the Nazi forces. And then they, they hire or the museum hires a craftsman to make a bunch of fake stones that they circulate around the country so that maybe they will throw the evil Nazi appraisers off the trail of the true stone. And then strangely, um, Marie's father tells a lot of lies to her. Like he reassures her and tells her things are okay when they're not, that he's being treated well in the work camps when he's not. Uh, He tells her at one point they're hiding in a barn, that they're staying in a luxurious hotel. But why is that strange? He has this girl who he's trying so hard to protect and who he's trying not to terrify, right? Well, yeah, but I guess I was wondering, so on one hand, he's creating light out of darkness, but on the other hand, he's lying. So that made me wonder, is that why he gets taken out of the story later? Because he lies and she needs to mature and like face the light, face the truth. And he sort of coddles her, protects her in a way that is interfering with her development. I don't. That's interesting because that's actually what happens to her great uncle. He mm-hmm. is a, he's an agoraphobe, I guess. He hasn't. Reckless. He had a recluse is putting it mildly. He hasn't left his house in 20 years um, or something like that. And uh, right. So he, it is considered dysfunctional, kind of not facing things is a problem in this book, not sort of looking at head on at the thing the way it is. There's a lot of praise of Juta, the sister, where Werner says, you know, how is it that she as a young child could see things that the rest of us could not see? Like we all jumped on the Hitler Youth bandwagon, and yet she was the only one who understood that the the radio transmissions that the Germans were sending out were a bunch of lies. And yet isn't the father's love for Marie-Laure the most beautiful thing in the book. I mean, that was, I I felt like he got vanished from the narrative because that was mechanistically necessary for the plot to develop in the way that it, like, to meet the import it was marching toward. But I actually thought their relationship was idealized, but in a quite beautiful way. And I don't think, I think, I'm not, I don't think he was punished for lying. I think I read those lies as, all in the service of trying to protect and save her in this incredibly dire set of circumstances. Well, that was actually my favorite thing about the book is the unusual currents of love between people. Not unusual, currents of of love (laughs) in unusual arrangements. You know, like she had no mother, so it was father to daughter. And then it kind of transmitted from Marie-Laure to her great uncle Etienne and Madame... Manek, who was his kind of housekeeper who'd been with him for a very long time. There was Werner and his protectiveness over his sister, Juta. You know, Werner had various uh, friend relationships. In fact, the unusual relationships were so lovely that when you got to a less unusual relationship (laughs) at the end, which is Werner kind of 
you know, briefly and magically falls in love with Marie Lol, it felt artificial because you had felt like we were watching the Titanic all of a sudden. Yes, like completely imagine the movie version of it. Right. That's when you start to imagine the movie version of it because the rest of the relationships are so poignant and unexpected. And then you've got this, you know, this kind of brief magical love, which I guess is why he had to die, right? He couldn't take that Titanic mood the whole way through and have them live out their life together in the museum in Paris. Yeah. And I also didn't buy that that was like an erotic love, really. Like it still seemed very chaste and pure because these characters are kind of held up to be idealized. And it's interesting that you would say that because I feel like the book is so sort of enveloping and full that you don't notice what's missing from it until later. But like going back through, I realized there's no comedy, there's no real romantic love. Like the the language is really evocative and sensual, but it's not like romantic at all. And it's surprising to me that this is like, what, a 500 something page book. And you really don't get that kind of relationship between characters at all. I have a different question about something that's missing from this book, and I'm not sure it's fair to raise, but there are basically no Jews in this book. There is one character for about half a second. Frederick is from a wealthy Berlin family. They have a neighbor who is Mm. Jewish. Werner sees her wearing her yellow star, and essentially Frederick's mom says, we're waiting for her to get kicked out of her apartment so we can take it over. And there's another one. The, Wait. Well, no, no, no. no. Okay. There's another one. Juta, Juta early on. Went, yes, there are references. They're not people. Juta early on says that somebody was banished from the swim team because the school or some official said that they couldn't swim with half-breeds because they would be mm. polluting something or other, the water of the team themselves. But they are just mentioned. And then um, there so are why do you think why do you think that he was obligated to mention Jews? I didn't feel that, but I, I thought it was a really interesting question you raised. Like why did that bother you? So I'm not sure. And it's actually a question that comes from my friend Rachel Gross. We were talking about this last week. But you know at this moment in World War II and Holocaust literature, it felt to me like, okay, well, maybe we can have a book about these very unusual characters that has nothing to do with the Holocaust. And that's okay. It's just in a different tradition. We're not, you know, over here in Holocaust literature in Ruth Franklin's book, for example, that asks all these questions about memoir versus fiction. We're in some other tradition. Then I started feeling like it was almost deliberately whitewashed in a strange way. And that started to bother me. But I don't know. What do you guys think? I also kept thinking of Austerlitz by Siebold and how somehow it felt to me like this book couldn't have been written without that book having been written first. Well, I wonder if like the omission was intentional, but not like in the service of whitewashing, but to create that kind of palpable absence. Like if this is a book about all the invisible things and the world of unseen things and it's all the light we cannot see, maybe it's significant that we encounter Jewish people sort of uh, from the side. Like remember Warner is reading what one of the Nazi officials calls a Jew book. And so sort of that landscape of wide-eyed wonder that science that comes to him courtesy of Jewish thinkers and Jewish scientists, but we never encounter them straight on. So maybe maybe that was an intentional move. But I do Yeah, think, I, yeah. I had that exact same thought. I was just wishing for it to be more frequent and more gritty, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like I thought, oh, maybe he is doing this by omission, but there wasn't quite enough of, of this. But I think, Emily, maybe what you're getting at is a sense that one thing he seemed to be trying to do in making this novel popular is making things that were quite uncomfortable fairly comfortable. 
Um, So there was a ton of soft landing in this Mm. book. A lot of beauty, for example, to the orphanage, a lot of beauty to the broken family that was Marie Lol, even a lot of beauty to Etienne, who was, you know, agoraphobe stuck in his house for 20 years, a lot of beauty to his relationship with the maid, like things that could have had a little bit of ugliness or complexity were often quite beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that created a space for like darts of ugliness. And there were plenty of those, like the prisoner that they beat up in the... I mean, the Hitler Mm. Youth stuff was pretty gruesome, right? It was like one act of cruelty after another. So it's not that cruelty was missing from this book, but it was was quite cushioned. Frederick's narrative is the most brutal, right? I mean, he is brain damaged by the beating he takes at the school and has to go home. And the book actually ends with him, which is an some ways an odd place for it to end and yet there's also beauty in the the imagery too because frederick is a huge bird watcher and Werner has saved a page from this incredibly beautiful illustrated book of birds that he has seen at frederick's house and sends it back to him so i think that's really such a good point han and it plays out even in the book's darts of ugliness I was wondering about, you know, the difference between Marie-Laure and Frederick are in some ways twinned at the end of the book. Like, she is blind, but can see everything now, right? Like, Mm -hmm. she has the life that she wants to live. She's had lovers. She has a daughter. She has a job that she wants. She basically, she has followed her passion. And Frederick can see, but is effectively blind. You know, all he can see is sort of paper bags floating. He has a, a kind of moment of almost grasping this bird, his mother gets excited thinking he can see the bird, but then that kind of fades. And he even makes, Dora even makes a point of describing the view out of their window in the little apartment that they now live in, which is a view of nothing, like they look out in a parking lot. And so even though this has been a book in some ways that has made us think about the humanity of Germans during World War II, lest we be too uncomfortable about that, Dora kind of takes it back in the end and ends on a note of German suffering. Hmm. which we're more comfortable with. Interesting. I thought that was a note of German cruelty because they had destroyed their own. I wasn't thinking of it as German suffering. I was thinking of Frederick, you know, now we're in the 1970s, of Frederick as standing in for everything is not okay. You know, that the other characters are kind of living a regular life. They haven't been haunted by the war. Then Juta receives this package from Volkheimer, which is a package of her brother's stuff. And so she's forced at that moment to kind of break her suburban mother routine and deal with the consequences of the war. And then you have Frederick, who is the human consequence of the war, like a nation that has destroyed its own. The cruelty still lasts. Not everyone is okay. In just a little bit, we will be back to talk about hopefully Judah and the end of the book. But first, this audiobook club podcast is sponsored by the Astronaut Wives Club. This summer on ABC, flashback to the 1960s, when America is racing to send a man into space, and seven elite pilots become the country's first astronauts. As these men became heroes, their wives rocketed to stardom. Based on the best-selling book, this is the story of the First Ladies of Space, Through triumph and tragedy, they forged a friendship that lasted over 50 years. The Astronaut Wives Club premieres Thursday, June 18th on ABC. Now back to the show. All right, let's talk about Warner's sister, Judah, who sort of is presented as a moral compass, I think. And at the end, she sort of has an improbable encounter with the adult Mari Lor. And I'm wondering what you guys thought of that. 
scene. So she was the great disappointment to me, Juta, because this was a book where throughout you're made to feel that the author wants to please you, you know, like <laughs> like like drop little crumbs for you and, you know, make things exciting and mysterious. And so I was waiting for Juta, who had started as the moral compass, to come back. And there was an ending with her, which we will talk about in a moment, where she receives, you know, as I said, she receives this duffel bag of stuff of her brothers. And so she wants to go back to St. Malo and see, like, who is this girl that he was potentially in love with, what happened at the end of his life. But I was expecting more from her than this kind of little suburban life that we got. Why Why do you think that is? It was really surprising to me that he didn't turn Juta into one of his lyrical, you know, romantic characters. I felt like it was just sort of a failure of imagination that somehow this limited square role she was playing of moral compass, which I think Katie is exactly right about, couldn't jump off into this later point in time where she is an adult. And when she went to see Marie-Laure in Paris, that was the encounter in some ways I had been waiting for in the book, because I think like you, Hannah, I was more intrigued by the idea of their relationship or their mm -hmm. connection. And yet I didn't feel like that scene really, I don't know, it didn't feel... I didn't get that much from it. Why don't we say what happened in that scene so our listeners know? Juta goes to Saint Mel No, she goes to Paris, I think. She she Yes, tracks she has to track Marilor down. Yes, she has to track her down. She tracks her down into Paris. This is an opportunity for us to learn what's been going on with her, as I said earlier, that she has a daughter and a job that she loves in a museum. And they talk to each other. But it's kind of a stunted conversation. One wants them to have a, a kind of great reckoning about Werner and the war and the role they each played. But it kind of happens each in their own head. Like they wonder about each other and what kind of person each of them are and the pains and the wounds that they're carrying from the war. But they don't have a sisterly moment or deepening about that subject. Now, maybe I'm being unfair, and that's actually the most realistic thing in the book, because these people have never met each other before. The person they share has died long ago. They have such completely different lives and memories of him that they just can't reach each other. And the novel does move towards an abrupt realism at the end. Like you right. have this, as you said, perhaps maybe realistic encounter between these two women who don't know each other and don't have the great rousing moment we want them to have. And then you, you know, then you have the grandson. The very, very end is about the grandson playing video games, which is odd and surprising. I also think that the two women sort of fulfill the same role in relation to Warner. So there is like a lack of conflict or friction there because they're both sort of like the wonderful woman who shows him the true values of life. And so there wasn't like a lot for them to disagree about or sort so of... So it's like a time-space continuum problem. Like they just can't be in the same space at the same time. Yeah. They're the <laughs> same they're narrative doubles. figure. Right, they're right. doubles. It's the yeah, but didn't, weren't problem. you curious what the hell happened to Juta? Like she was my favorite character at the start of the novel. She was the one I was most hungry to know about. And, you know, she is raped. We do get that kind of brief and horrible rape scene mm -hmm. of her and uh, Frau Elena, who ran the orphanage, and a couple of the other girls who at that point are working. And then you sort of cut to her married and having a child and living a somewhat repressed suburban life. I just wanted her to be part of the resistance movement. You know, I wanted some Marie-Laure energy in this girl. And, and if she wasn't going to have that energy, I want to know why. Like, how is it that that got burned out of her? She was incredibly unusual at six years old. You know, she saw mm -hmm. things, as her brother said, 
that nobody could see. So what happened to all of that? Um, um, what's the right word for that? That seer like, energy or that? Prescient yeah. or yes, yeah, right. Like and pers- is perspicacious, which I cannot pronounce. But and she was angry and rebellious yes. and she didn't, you know, she didn't buy any of the stuff that the Germans were feeding them and everybody else in the orphanage did. So, so where did that all go? She's a math right. teacher. And is which there is a great. difference? Yeah. Well, right. But it's not portrayed as great. You're right, Han. It's portrayed as repressed and very small. Whereas Marie Laura's life in Paris seems like the quintessential modern woman who's made it into the next century. And despite her blindness, she's discovered new species of snails. She's a scientist. It all seems very satisfying. Yeah. And so, fa- oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Katie. No, Sorry, no. I was just going to say also she's so she's an algebra teacher. Right. And I felt like one of her big moments at the beginning of the book is when she says to Warner, all you care about is your mathematics problems. I'm listening to the radio and I hear that we're <laughs> bombing France. And so there's this sort of interesting tension where she's saying, Warner, you're becoming a machine. You're becoming just calculations. And she's sort of like the voice for the human and transcending technology. But now here she is. She's the one with the equations. Is there something in there about the dullness of the modern age? I mean, is that what we're supposed to think at the end of the Or novel? the dullness of modern Germany as opposed to France? Or are we supposed to believe that this girl who was so vibrant and rebellious couldn't find a way to continue to be that kind of person in modern Germany, which I have to say just as a historical matter makes no sense to me. Yeah, well, she does have that weird moment of guilt on the train, right? Where she sees a man and and he's disabled and she's worried that he's going to confront her because he hears her German accent and say, you did this to me. And instead, he just kind of doses off harmlessly. And I wonder, yeah, yeah if she's Yeah, so maybe that's it. The, yeah, the modern German has to disappear. You know, that there's no way for the modern German to own their Germanists or, or be out there. You just have to, you know, you just basically have to fade. Especially that generation of Germans, perhaps, who was too young to necessarily be responsible for the Nazis and yet can't completely disassociate themselves. Right. Okay. I don't know. I'm not finding it totally satisfying, but right, it's but better than what we have before. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so what did you guys make of just like sentence by sentence, the writing? Because I thought some of it was really beautiful, I think I said, and some of it I just found kind of overwrought. And I'm wondering if, if you guys agreed or if you just liked it. I mean, most yeah, of the reviews I, mean, I saw said, oh, this is beautiful and epiphanic. Someone said it was just full of epiphanies all the time. That was the problem. It's so funny. Yeah. It was beautiful or it was full of epiphanies. Yeah. Like there there should be a break between those two. Yeah. Uh, let's let's maybe read a couple of passages towards the end here. Like let's read what we found beautiful and maybe compare it to something we found overly lyrical and epiphanic. Okay, well actually endlessly epiphanic. Can we get to Von Rumpel? Because I felt that the first description of him, like it was really well written, but it was also so cartoonish. And so it was like his excellent skills as a stylist being used for used in not great pursuits. So this is on uh, 141. It's our first glimpse of Von Rumpel. And it says he is 41 years old, not so old that he cannot be promoted. He has moist red lips, pale, almost translucent cheeks like fillets of raw soul and an instinct for correctness that rarely fails him. He has a wife who suffers his absences without complaint and who arranges porcelain kittens by color, lightest to darkest, on two different shelves in their drawing room in Stuttgart. And I just thought, well, that is a great introduction, but this is also, this is a cartoon character. Right, right. The kittens were cartoonish. Yeah, Yeah, and then later he has, it mentions his daughters, and and then later 
there he has sort of visions of his daughter appearing in a room which i thought were more successful you know mm-hmm. like when he moved into the imaginary or the invisible spaces which is the true subject of this book i quite liked his writing you know when his writing got more concrete i liked it less mm-hmm. i liked this passage toward the end about marilor she still counts storm drains, 38 on the walk home from her laboratory. Flowers grow on her tiny wrought iron balcony, and in summer she can estimate what time of day it is by feeling how wide the petals of the evening primroses have opened. Now that's the opposite of what I said. I forgot that one about the evening primroses. He's amazing, I thought, in writing about blindness. Oh, yeah. Right. That's a really... Yes. That is true. And especially there's some line where he's talking about the texture of the world is all lattices and upheavals of sense or something or sensory upheavals. And then there's the time when he is describing the way she sees her father and he's different colors at different times of day, depending on whether he's hunched over a table working on one of his miniature constructions or walking through the halls of the museum. Like sometimes he's gold, sometimes he's blue. I thought that was really lovely and unusual. Would you guys recommend this book? Yes, I would recommend this book because I think in a funny way, everything that we're complaining about in some ways propels the book forward. You know, Mm. it makes it pleasurable to read. So, you know, the fact that it has this cartoonish German evil character doesn't necessarily (laughs) detract from your pleasure in the moment that you're reading the book. It's like you said, Katie, in the beginning, it's just afterwards that you think, was that really fully realized? And do I really understand what Werner's motivations were? And and am I really comfortable with the, you know, ethical weightlessness of the book? Mm. Um, but, but the experience of reading it, I think, is quite pleasurable. Yeah, it turns us into receptive instruments, like in the same way that the radio is picking up all these delightful little vibrations. Like this is an incredibly sensual book. It's really fun and delightful and engrossing. And you just become aware of of yourself as someone who is (laughs) receiving transmissions and maybe not thinking about them too hard. Yeah, I would recommend it as well. But that's so terrible. That's exactly what he doesn't want. Like Mm. this whole book is essentially like one long text between Werner and (laughs) (laughs) Nelly, but like played out over 500 some pages, you know, and so um, he wants you to be very conscious of yourself as receiver and somebody else's sender. Oh, well. I would definitely recommend this book, but I found myself also wanting to go back and read some Holocaust literature that I thought was great at the time. And I was thinking a lot about the book, The Last of the Just, the author of which I cannot remember his name. And I I haven't read this book in 20 years, so I'm not sure how it would sit with me now. But at the time, I found it really compelling. And there was, and maybe this is just me being kind of too dutifully Jewish in my thinking about the war and the Holocaust in Europe. But I wanted to kind of fill the space that I felt like this book didn't fill. Well, thank you so much, guys. This was really great. And I feel like talking to you about this book has made me like it better. So thank you. Absolutely. Please join us next month when we will be discussing Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. You can subscribe to the Audiobook Club on iTunes or check us out on slate.com slash ABC. 